What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. To the left-hand side for Vieira, who will play through to Gabriel Jesus, who's in here for Arsenal. Gabriel Jesus to finish it off. Oh, what a way to do it! Gabriel Jesus seals the points for Arsenal. He's back, and he's back with a bang. Into the penalty area it goes. Gabriel Keller, and it's into the back of the net. Arsenal take an early lead through Gabriel. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the daily Arsenal podcast with me, Harry Simeon. <laughs> I've just realised that I did this incredible introduction to our live listeners on mute. I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. I was maybe too excited um, that I was back in front of the camera, in front of the microphone for another episode of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, because we've been without one for a couple of days. I pressed go live. I hit the button. I started rambling on about we're back and we've got loads to get into, blah, 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 blah. But I'd forgotten to take my microphone off mute. And then we went into the intro. So I'll cut that out for the audio listeners who will be thinking, uh, what the hell is he talking about? But for those of you watching the video, I can't change it. Once it's live on YouTube, it's there. So um, yeah, we'll just have to put a little bit of a timestamp. The Chronicles of a Muted Gunner, says N17 Gunner. You're not right. Uh, you're not wrong, I should say, mate. Um, I hope you're all good. Hope you're all well. Big uh, good afternoon to everybody who is with us. We've got loads and loads to get into. We're going to talk uh, about Gabriel Jesus. We're going to discuss his fitness after an interesting report emerged from Sammy Mockbell. We're going to talk about Rio Ferdinand's ridiculous comments about Mikel Arteta. Not that they deserve too much attention, but I think it's important to touch on the levels of delusion that we're talking about here. Uh, we're going to discuss the Nicolas Pepe saga, which has finally come to an end. We're also going to touch on Arsenal's financial results, but I've also got some other numbers that I promise are going to shock you. Yes. There are a few numbers that are going to shock you. And I saw somebody put in the comments way before we started. I think it was Damien Kelly. Let me have a look. He says, don't come at us with the £52 million loss. We don't care. We are not accountants. We are going to discuss that. But those are not the numbers that I'm going to um, share with you guys that I believe are going to shock you. I don't think anyone's shocked that Arsenal uh, have lost money again in that kind of financial period because uh, we all know the position from which we've been coming. And if Arsenal posted a profit, then you'd all have been saying, well, why didn't they spend any money in January and improve the squad and fix the squad, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll get into all of that on this edition of the show. Um, Archituthis Ducks, I don't even know how to pronounce that, says, give the Malaga, which is not a very nice word in Greek, uh, about another three hours. He's always late. This comment came in at 12.20 p.m. when the stream was set up for 12.55. So, to be fair, mate, you haven't really given me a chance there, uh, have you, bloody hell? Um, let's get into uh, our subjects today, because as I said, we've not done a podcast for a couple of days. My fault, nobody else's. Um, and so uh, we're a little bit behind on the kind of news curve. There are a few things that I want to discuss uh, with you guys and get your opinion and thoughts on from the live chat as well. Uh, why was there no podcast on Monday? Well, because we did the post Newcastle podcast on Sunday. And I figured I'd give that a little bit of time to breathe and, and time for you guys to kind of consume that. Let me know your thoughts, of course, in the comments section. If you haven't checked that out, you can go back and find it. Yesterday um, was a really, really busy day for me. I had a meeting in, in London that I needed to get into to work for. And then I was on commentary duty last night at Pride Park for the League One clash between Derby County and Charlton Athletic. Nathan Jones's Charlton Athletic, who on my watch got their first win. It was the first win in 17. They'd not won in their previous 16 games. So maybe I'm a bit of a good luck charm for Charlton. Maybe I took a bit of the Arsenal form with me to Pride Park last night. What I will say is, and I won't bore you with the details of the game, you know, because I, I appreciate this is an Arsenal podcast and you probably don't care, but 
What I will say is that was my first visit to Pride Park. Never been there before. And that is a stadium that I can tell you is fit for the Premier League. You know, you look at clubs that are really, really big in size and stature, but are nowhere near where they should be. Charlton Athletic probably fall into that category as well, but none more so than Derby County. I remember sort of sitting there with my co-commentator, uh, Boreham Wood defender Jamal Fifield last night, and we were sitting there about 10 minutes before kickoff, and we were talking to each other, and we went, mate, this is a grand old stadium. It's huge. It's massive. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. But the turnout tonight looks pretty poor, pretty underwhelming, doesn't it? And before you know it, we kind of looked down at our notes, done our introduction to the program. And when I glanced up for the kickoff, I couldn't believe how many people had made their way into the stadium for the kind of last minute. And, and, and we're sort of there and ready to take in the game. The support for Derby County was incredible. A shout out to the pocket of Charlton fans as well that made that journey uh, up there on a Tuesday night. Of course, I made the trip and I know it was quite difficult. And as I said earlier on Twitter, for those of you that follow me, the day I drive home from an Arsenal game north of London or any game north of London at night and don't find a road closure on the M1, I'm going to throw a party and every single one of you will be invited because it is just, it is just like, I mean, it's so frustrating. I ended up having to divert off the motorway, going round to Leicester and taking this A road, which obviously the speed limit is much lower on and it's one lane in certain sections and there's a backup of traffic and it just takes so much time out of your journey. I got home, I think at about 1.30 in the morning. Not too bad, I suppose, for a midweek game um, up in Derby. Okay, let's get into the Arsenal stuff now because I know you're all uh, desperate for that rather than me rambling on about my adventures to Pride Park and all the rest of it. Uh, let's begin with a special message uh, to somebody who I think needs people's prayers and support at the minute. Former Arsenal man Christopher Olsen has been taken ill, according to reports. He's on a ventilator and he's suffering from a brain-related illness. Uh, we do wish him all the very best. Those of you uh, who will remember Christopher Olsen um, will know that he didn't make a massive mark at Arsenal Football Club, but once a part of the Arsenal family, always a gooner in my opinion, unless you join Spurs, Man United, etc., etc. Christopher Olsen did none of that, but this is a really, really serious issue. Um, it sounds like he's he's fighting for his life and, you know, his current club, Michelin, put out a statement yesterday kind of confirming all of this and uh, notifying people of the, the players' current struggles. And I just wanted to send our love and wishes um, over to Christopher Olsen and his family at this very, very difficult time. Um, at that age, to be impacted by something like this and to not see it coming, for it to just be a sudden uh, illness is is really, really difficult for for obviously not just the person fighting it, but the people around him as well who are trying to process that. So just wanted to send our best wishes, um, and I'm sure you'll all agree with me and join me in doing that for Christopher Olsen. Okay, let's talk Gabriel Jesus. The Brazilian was back on the bench against Newcastle United at the weekend, which I have to say I didn't see coming. Um, I was also pleased, though, that Arsenal decided, given the game state, there was no need to take a gamble or a risk. And there wasn't this desperation to get him back on the pitch where they went, well, you know what, we're 4-0 up. Let's give him 20 minutes at the end or whatever. There was a, a very calm and measured approach, I think, taken when it comes to the decision not to bring Gabby Jesus back on. Look, the truth is that at this moment in time, we don't desperately need Gabriel Jesus. We've got other players who have stepped up and taken on that centre-forward role and done a really, really good job of it of late, which means that we haven't suffered with Jesus's loss in the way that we might have done in other periods since his arrival at the club. I think we can all agree that Eddie Nketiah isn't quite up to it in terms of bringing the same level to that centre-forward position. I think he's a good striker in his own right, Eddie Nketiah, but is his movement sophisticated enough? Is his link-up play good enough? Does he offer you enough physically to compensate for the fact that maybe he doesn't tick all of those boxes? I don't think he does. And I'm pretty confident in saying that come the summer, Eddie Nketiah is going to move on, not just because Arsenal will probably want to move him on to raise some funds, but probably 
because Eddie Nketiah will feel like at his age and at the point he's at in his career now, he's deserving of more regular football. And that is absolutely right. He would be 100% justified in feeling that way if that is indeed how he's feeling. We've seen Kai Havertz play up top in recent weeks and do a cracking job. We've seen Leandro Trossard do the same. So I think it's right that according to Sammy Mockbell, Arsenal are going to take a very, very careful approach when it comes to reintegrating Gabriel Jesus back in the team. Because this knee injury that he is suffering from at the moment, this knee problem that appears to be ongoing, you know, it, it's got to be quite severe for it to constantly be flaring up. It can't be get Gabriel Jesus back for two or three weeks and then he's out again. It can't be that we're constantly having to put Gabriel Jesus under the knife, not us literally, but in terms of him needing to have corrections made to the initial surgery or having fluid on the knee and having to have that drain. That means that we're not managing the situation properly. And if we need to put Gabriel Jesus on the sidelines for a bit or be very, very careful with his minutes while that gets sorted and while we're allowing him at the same time to recover in the way that he needs to, then that is absolutely the right decision to take. There are times where, as a football team, you are desperate to get somebody back into the picture. And there will be certain positions where there are players that are so good that you are desperate to get them back and you're willing to take a slight risk or gamble. Because this knee thing with Jesus is ongoing, it's not like one week he's done his groin and the next week he's done his hamstring and, you know, fatigue is catching up with him and his body's breaking down. It's none of that. This is the same issue recurring over and over again, which tells you that it's quite a serious issue. And if not managed correctly and in the right way, we could end up with a situation where we lose Gabriel Jesus for another six to nine months. And we can't afford to do that. He's too good a player and he's too important to this squad. People always talk about this Arsenal side as one that has bags and bags of talent, but not enough experience, not enough leadership. Gabriel Jesus is one of that leadership pack. He's been there. He's done it with Manchester City. And yes, I want him back on the pitch sooner rather than later. I would argue that right now I'm not sure I would have him replace Kai Havertz up front because I think the form of, of both Havertz and Trossard when they've played there in recent weeks has been so good that there probably isn't a, a footballing case to put Jesus back ahead of them at this moment in time. But to have him in the squad will be key. You can utilise him on the right flank if you wanted at times as well. If you ever were to become, um, you know, in a position where you're without Bukayo Saka, for example, he would be a great fit. He's important to the squad and we need to manage this very, very carefully. So that's absolutely the right approach to take. Somebody asked me today, do I think he'll start against Sheffield United? And I don't think he will. And I don't think he should either. I think he was on the bench against Newcastle. And thankfully, the situation dictated that we didn't need to take a gamble or a risk on him. And I think against Sheffield United, if you want to reintegrate him, um, maybe it's one where he can have 20, 30 minutes. Um, rather than in being relied on from the start. And also, it's not the kind of game on paper anyway, and I always say that no game in the Premier League is easy, but it's not the kind of game on paper that I go, oh shit, we really, really do need Gabriel Jesus for this fixture. I think we can get by without him in this game, and therefore I would use it as an opportunity to build up his minutes if the game state allows, and I wouldn't be starting him and risking him if I'm not totally 100% convinced that he's back to full fitness. And you can't be at this moment in time because constantly we're hearing about these knee problems. Um, let's take some of your uh, thoughts uh, on this uh, from the live uh, chat. Um, John Daly says, I think uh, that Jesus should only play Champions League matches. Uh, Yahia says Jesus should come on only as a sub until we're left with seven or eight games. Um, Brian says, who's to say that Gabby... Gabriel Jesus, that is, wouldn't be cooking with the post-Dubai team. I think he would be. I think he would be. I'm not I'm not ever sat here and said that Kai Havertz is a better centre-forward than him or that Leandro Trossard is a better centre-forward with him. What I'm saying is that we've coped well without him. And the fact that we've coped well without him would give me confidence as a manager that I can be a little bit more cautious in the way that I reintegrate the player because of his importance to the side. I wouldn't want to take any unnecessary risks and any unnecessary gambles. Uh, lots of you asking if the Jurian Timber news is true. Is Jurian Timber back in full training? We'll come on to that in just a second. 
Yes, it's correct. Jurian Timber is back in training with the Arsenal first team squad. Um, I'm not sure exactly how far they're going to push it. I'm not sure um, which activities specifically he's allowed to do and if there are any activities that he will be excluded from as he continues his recovery from that long-term knee injury. But the good news is that he's on the grass with the rest of the first team and he's working his way towards a point where he can be included in a match day squad. And I, I think, you know, when people talk about our lack of depth or have bemoaned the injuries that we've had this season and then as a result of that, put the microscope on Mikel Arteta's approach and style and 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 some of the decisions he's made and gone, well, he's left us short again. It's as if people have forgotten that he brought in a defender that could literally play anywhere across the back line for 35 million quid and that he's been without him all damn season long. Um, he is on his way back and when he comes back, it's going to be a real pleasant moment. I think we all saw enough over the course of pre-season um, and in that Community Shield game against Manchester City to know that we've got a real player on our hands. And I think that's why the disappointment when he picked up that injury was felt by so many of us and, and why it's continued to be something that's been nagging away in the back of our minds over the course of the season. But Julian Timber is on his way back. Will he be available for the game against Sheffield United? No, um, that's not my understanding of the situation. I think he's going to need to have probably two to three weeks of foolish training before Arsenal even consider that. And Mikel Arteta made a, a comment in the pre-Newcastle press conference when he was asked about Thomas Partey, but I guess this is something that applies across the board. And he said, we need to make sure that the timing is spot on when it comes to bringing these players back. You need to make sure that you don't push too hard too soon. And, and equally, you know, you need to obviously bring these players back as soon as possible because you know that they'll add to your side. So it's a really, really fine balance. But it feels like at the very least, Mikel Arteta is accepting of the fact that, you know, he will be better off in the long term if he does take the advice of the medical staff and isn't pushing too hard for slightly speedier recovery times, you know, because that could jeopardise the recovery and could put those players in danger moving forward. But Jurian Timber is on his way back, which is um, which is great. Uh, Ray Beam says, Twitter says it's true, Michael, so it must be true. No, I've, I have been told today that it is um, it is a thing. Um, and, and to be fair, Mikel Arteta did back that up because he said, obviously at the weekend, that the hope was that Timber would be doing more this week. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it feels like um, everything is pointing to that. And as I say, I've been told today that uh, he will be, of course, um, participating in those training sessions this week. Come on. Um, big hello to everybody who's just joined us as well, because I know a load of you have joined after the stream uh, has started. Big hello to all of you. Please, if you could, if you haven't done so already, do you mind leaving a like on the video? It really, 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 really does help. And if you could subscribe to the channel as well, I'd be extremely grateful uh, because, um, yeah, we're trying to build the community, right? That's what we want to do. Um, and a big thank you to everybody that listens daily. Um, or, well, daily, unless I have days like yesterday where I just don't turn up. But you know what I'm trying to say. Um, I really, really appreciate all the support, not just on um, YouTube, but on all the other platforms as well. So thank you, guys. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Okay, let's um, let's move on. Let's move on to our next topic. Rio Ferdinand has been at it again, spouting nonsense about Arsenal players and this time Arsenal managers. <laughs> Rio Ferdinand riled the Arsenal fan base a couple of weeks ago now when he said that Bukayo Saka was not world-class. And listen, he's entitled to his opinion. That's fine. My my gripe and, and the thing that really sort of gets on my nerves is when people put out such big opinions with so much certainty and conviction, yet refuse to back them up with any kind of argument of substance. That's the thing that gets under my skin more than any other thing, right? So if you if you phone me up and you said that you think that 
William Saliba's a rubbish centre-half or isn't as good a centre-half as everybody else says he is. And you gave me X, Y and Z reasons as to why you think that. I wouldn't agree with you. I'm not saying I would agree with you. But I would at least respect the opinion. I would at least respect that you've taken some time to think about this and compiled your reasons and tried to present them in an argument in order to make that case and make that point. Rio Ferdinand didn't do that when it came to talking about Bukayo Saka. And again, you know, for what it's worth, I think Bukayo Saka is world-class, but I also think that you could make the case, as Rio Ferdinand did, that Phil Foden's ahead of him because of what he's achieved in football and the career he's had so far, the silverware, the medals, all the rest of it. I think you can have that opinion. It's not completely outrageous, but I'll tell you what is outrageous is to say that Mikel Arteta would leave Arsenal in a heartbeat to join Manchester United if the club came calling. What? What? Really? Why would Mikel Arteta, who's put blood, sweat and tears into rebuilding this Arsenal side and getting them to a point where we're now all sitting here in March, going into March, expecting Arsenal to push for the title, expecting Arsenal to turn around their last 16 of the Champions League tie with FC Porto, the tie that they are behind in. The expectation is there because of the progress that we've made under Mikel Arteta. He's had a lot of shit along the way to get us to this point. He's had to make difficult decisions. He's had to upset people, etc., etc., etc. And you are telling me that he would answer a phone call from Manchester United, which was hypothetically offering him the job of replacing Eric Ten Hag, and you think he would go into the room with Edu and the Cronkies and say, guys, thank you very much, but I'm off. That was a terrible Mikel Arteta accent. The guy's bit was good, but then it went downhill and it went kind of Greek. But the point I'm trying to make is that's not happening in a million years. Why would anybody leave a club that is on the up and is in a really, really stable position at the moment for a club that is a basket case of a football club right now? Because that's what Manchester United is. And this idea, this notion that Sir Jim Ratcliffe is going to flip it all on its head in a short space of time is fanciful at best. This guy owns 27% of Manchester United Football Club. And what's going to happen is something very, very similar to what we experienced a few years ago. Yes, if he puts the right people in the right positions, that should have a knock-on positive effect on results and that should enable them to be better at recruitment and various other things that have let Manchester United down over the years. But one of the constant criticisms we heard of the uh, current ownership, the Glazers, was that they constantly take money out of the club. They use it as a cash cow. They bleed it dry year after year after year. They've sucked all the life out of it by, um, you know, milking it financially. They still own the vast majority, not just the majority, but the vast majority of that football club. And if they want to do that still, they're within their rights to do that. And the other question then becomes, how much money and effort and time will Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos invest in trying to turn the Manchester United ship around, given they only own 27%? Because the problem here is that they'd almost be working against themselves. If you're Sir Jim Ratcliffe and you work night and day, fight tooth and nail to make this football club great again, as much as I dislike them, they are a great football club. If he was to do all of that, but only have 27%, he's kind of working against himself because what he'd be doing is driving the share price up of the football club and the value of the football club, which means the Glazers are are going to be worth even more money. And then when Sir Jim Ratcliffe comes to the point where he maybe wants to go for the full takeover, he's going to have to pay a lot more than he would pay tomorrow if he was to take a a full stake in the club then. That's the bit that people keep missing. Do you remember when we had Usmanov and the Cronkies and one was on 30% and the other was on 30% too? And it was kind of like, well, I'm going to put some money in. But no, actually, I'm not because I'm just going to make your share price higher, which means then I'm going to find it harder to to buy you out. And then that was happening the other way around. Usmanov kept talking a good game. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But he never actually did it, never showed anything to suggest that he would. 
KSE were happy to not put anything in and, and not really make decisions that benefited the club from a football side first and foremost, because it was all about the business element at that point. And we ended up in a bit of a kind of stalemate situation for a long, long time. And that saw Arsenal's demise. What makes people think that that isn't going to be the case at Man United? Now, I'm not saying it definitely will, but there are risks here. There are risks here that, so Jim Ratcliffe starts off great. It looks like he's doing all the right things, but then it comes to a certain point where he can't do anymore, maybe doesn't want to do anymore for the reasons that I've explained. Um, but Rio can tell you now, Mikel Arteta, he is not going uh, anywhere near Manchester United Football Club. Why on earth would he? He's going to go from working with Gabriel and Saliba to Lindelof and Maguire. He's going to go from working with Bukayo Saka to Anthony. He's going to go from Gabriel Martinelli to Marcus Rashford. Or from Casemiro, whose legs have gone, to Declan Rice. Is there even any comparison there? Come. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Come on, guys. Are we serious here? Are we having a serious conversation? And the fact that this has been picked up by so many is, is annoying to me. And I realise I'm a hypocrite because I'm sitting here talking about it. But it's kind of like, it's one of those things that is so outrageous and so stupid that you feel like you need to address it in some way, shape or form. But actually what you're doing is giving the whole conversation oxygen, which it just doesn't deserve. Mikel Arteta isn't going anywhere near Manchester United Football Club. Um, and, and the truth is that Man United probably would never give somebody like Mikel Arteta the time to do what he's done at Arsenal, which is essentially turn the club's fortunes around. But anyway, Mikel's also worked with Manchester City too, unless you don't think that has any meaning or carries any weight. The Nicolas Pepe financial saga is finally over. The Arsenal have finished paying for the £72 million winger who never really made enough of a mark to justify that fee. That's the truth of it. Um, a lot of people used the price as a, a stick to beat Nicolas Pepe with. And I believe that actually the questions needed to be asked of the people that sanctioned that deal. And we all know now that Raul Sanley wasn't the best thing since sliced bread, the thing that he was made out to be really when uh, he joined the football club. Um, when I said I've got some numbers that are going to shock you, that I'm going to bring to you a little bit later on in the programme, one of them is in relation to Nicolas Pepe. That's a bit of a clue. Uh, and that's a bit of a hint. But look, that is finally done and, and we can kind of move on. Um, and that is a kind of nice segue, I guess, onto Arsenal's uh, financial results. Now, I know uh, Damien said in the comments a little bit earlier on that he... Um, he isn't an accountant, so he doesn't really care. Uh, but there is a brilliant accountant, goes by the name of Chris on Twitter, who has broken uh, this all down uh, really, really well. I'm going to give you the kind of top lines of it. I don't want to sit and go through every single number. And to be honest, uh, despite my banking background, I'm not really uh, the best person to explain all this stuff to you. But here are some top line figures. So in terms of the revenue, Arsenal's revenue uh, was at £467 million. Uh, that's up 25%. The wages bill also went up uh, by 11%. It's at £235 million. Wages to revenue is at 50%, which is down 7%. So we were at 57% previously in terms of um, how much of our revenue was eaten up by the wages that we were, uh, of course, paying out. Operating loss, £57 million, which is down 3% from where it was in the last set of figures. And in terms of player additions, uh, they've attributed £251 million over that last uh, period. If you go through this thread, um, search uh, for Christoph underscore 21 on Twitter. You can go through it and read it all. I'm not going to sit here and go through every bit of it, but there are a couple of points 
that I wanted to pick out. Arsenal are the sixth Premier League club to post their 2022-23 financials and the fourth of that six to post a pre-tax loss. Uh, so far, only Newcastle United's £73.3 million deficit was worse than Arsenal's. Um, and there's a £132.5 million difference between the Gunners and league winners Manchester City, who posted £80.4 million of profit. So when we were telling you during January or in the build-up to January that because of the profit and sustainability stuff, because we were going to take another hit on that, we couldn't go and spend big. And people were saying, nonsense, absolute load of rubbish. Arsenal got plenty of money. Well, this is what we were talking about, essentially. Arsenal's uh, £52.1 million loss was £6.6 million higher than the 2021-22 deficit as £94.8 million revenue increase was entirely wiped out. Um, increases in expenditure and reductions in player trading profits played a part in this. And as I say, I'm not going to go through all of this uh, now, but you can uh, go over and read it yourself. It does say that after 11 consecutive profitable years up to 2018, Arsenal have now posted a loss in each of the last five seasons. Uh, that's been as a result of the significant increased investment in the playing squad and the fact that we've been without Champions League football. Now, you hope that being in the Champions League and hopefully sustaining our status as a Champions League club for a number of years to come now is going to see us uh, turn that around over time. But Again, I'm not going to go through all of this because he's broken down every element of it. He's done a fantastic job. I, I highly recommend um, you reading this. Um, talks about player sales, everything, the works. But I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that when people say, and, I, and I've said this in the past, I'm going to hold my hands up. I've said in the past that I wasn't sure that KSE was serious about Arsenal actually being competitive and winning things and that all they really cared about was um, was the business element. Now, I think that if we're back in the Champions League and we're, and we're able to sustain that status, as I've just mentioned, then this stuff, it takes care of itself. Um, and the more we win and, and you know, the bigger the, the brand becomes and the more commercial deals we do and all the rest of it, then obviously this stuff kind of takes care of itself. But the fact that Arsenal have been making the investment that they've been making over these last few years, despite five seasons of losses, as we've just highlighted, is a sign that it isn't just about the money, unless they're looking at it long term. If we invest this money over the next 10 years, then we're going to be in a great position for another 10 years. I don't know. I just feel like it shows that um, the people running the football club now are serious and and do um, place value in, in going and winning things and being competitive as well, which is something I couldn't always say um, I was convinced of in the past. I think I'm pretty comfortable now that that is actually the case, just based on those numbers. Um, and based on what we've been talking about over the course of the last few minutes. Okay, we're going to take another short pause. And when we come back, uh, we've got a couple of other bits and pieces to uh, discuss. Okay, let's quickly bring you an update on Takahiro Tomiyasu, who's not been seen uh, since returning uh, from the Asian Cup. I don't mean like he's missing or anything. I just mean he's not been uh, in the Arsenal side, in the Arsenal squad. Uh, there are rumours that he could be available for the trip to Sheffield United, or at the very least, Arsenal are hopeful he could be involved in that game. And if he was to be involved in that game, that'd be a big boost for us because we've been really reliant on Jakub Kivior at left-back in recent weeks. And I think he's done a really good job of kind of adapting to that position. And I think he's improving week on week. But there's still a part of me that thinks in the very biggest games um, we could do with someone who's a little bit more familiar with that position. And Takahiro Tomiyasu is certainly that um, when he's back and when he's available. Uh, something else I wanted to touch on uh, was uh, the rearranged fixtures. Uh, of course, the TV companies dictating who plays who, when and where. Um, as has been the case for some years now. But I just wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, make sure you are right across it. So three of our Premier League games in April have been rearranged to allow for live TV coverage in the UK. The month begins when we welcome Luton Town to North London. And that game has been moved to Wednesday, April the 3rd, with a 7.30pm kickoff time. That will be broadcast live on TNT Sports here. Uh, the following weekend, we head to Brighton and Hove Albion. 
And that match remains on Saturday, April the 6th. But the kickoff time is going to be moved to 5.30 p.m. That is, again, uh, for a Sky Sports audience. And exactly a week later, our game against uh, Aston Villa at the Emirates Stadium will uh, also be a 5.30 p.m. start because that's also on Sky Sports. However, if Aston Villa reach the Europa Conference League quarterfinals, which I'm sure they will, that game will be moved to Sunday, the 14th of April, with a kickoff time to be determined. Um, other matches in April against Wolves and Tottenham could also move as live selections for the remaining rounds in April will be announced in due course. However, as always, fixtures are still subject to change. That Tottenham game is not going to be a Saturday three o'clock kickoff, right? That's I'm sure of that. So, um, yeah, keep your eyes on that one as well. Okay, uh, what else did I want to do? I wanted to do uh, the the bit that I've been looking forward to, actually, or show the bit that I baited you in with on the title, the numbers that will shock you. These numbers I'm going to share with you, um, related to Arsenal, of course, are going to shock you. Well, at least they should shock you. They might not, and I realise that now that I'm saying it, but they should, or they're at least numbers that deserve a, or something like that, you know. Well, anyway, we'll get into it in just a second. Don't go anywhere. If I could quickly remind you, uh, before we jump into that final section, please do leave a like on the video. Subscribe to the channel if you're brand spanking new. Turn on your notifications so that you never miss a show um, here on the Chronicles of Aguna YouTube channel. If you're listening on audio, make sure you're subscribed. And any reviews, obviously five-star ones, would be very, very much appreciated. Okay, the numbers that are going to shock you. Um, I've seen over the last sort of 24 hours more reports about strikers. I've seen Gyokares linked, Osimhen, Xerxes, Tony, Tom Canton mentioned all of these names on his show earlier today. And I'm not saying that in the long term we don't need a striker or that we're not looking for a striker. I think it's probably one of the next things that we need to do when it comes to the rebuild and the process and all the rest of it. But as I quoted a couple of days ago, or I say quoted, I mean quote tweeted a couple of days ago, there's some numbers that really kind of jumped out to me and made me think, bloody hell, guys. We spent the entire season, the majority of it, moaning about the fact that we don't score goals as freely as we did last season and complaining about the lack of a striker with many people when discussing the title race, using that as the sole reason they don't feel that Arsenal can compete with City or Liverpool. Well, here's a, a number for you that might jump out at you. This is as per Orbino. Arsenal have scored more goals this season after 26 games than they have in any other campaign since the 1963-64 season when they had netted 69 at this point. You've got to go back to before my dad was born to find a season in which Arsenal had scored more goals at the 26 game mark than they have this time around. Does that dispel and kill the myth that we need a striker? Is it a myth or do you think that a striker would take this team to an even higher level? Because I genuinely believe, and maybe we'll do a show on this one day, that if you put a focal point, if you put someone who the game is geared around into the centre forward position at Arsenal, you take away from those around him. I really do believe that. But I think also, if you look at Manchester City, Pep Guardiola's found a way of having that type of player, but it not really taking away too much from those around him. And I think only a very, very elite level coach could do that. So yeah, you know, that's a really, really interesting discussion and really, really interesting debate. But are you surprised to hear that no Arsenal team since the 63-64 campaign has scored more goals than this one at this point? Because that would mean that we've got more goals than we had when we had Thierry Henry up front or Ian Wright up front or Dennis Bergkamp up front. And I never remember any of those points hearing anybody go, we need a striker. You know, maybe you could put Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in that category. Robin Van Persie, Emmanuel Adebayor had a good run as well at one point. I don't ever remember during those periods hearing the conversation of we need a striker, yet here we are having scored more goals at this point than any of those teams that you would think back to and, and never 
make that point about. So that that's why that surprised me. I think it's a really, really uh, interesting number. A couple of others. Nicolas Pepe, who we were just talking about, according to Tim Payton of the Arsenal Supporters Trust. Now, I've not checked into this, and I don't know that you can check into this. I don't know how you could possibly know this for sure without having um, eyes on, you know, the deal paperwork and all the rest of it, knowing exactly what he was earning, any bonuses that were in place. But according to Tim Payton, the signing of Nicolas Pepe in total cost us £150 million as a football club. That is madness. That is wild. And whilst I regret that it happened, and I think that we were restricted as a result of making that really, really bad decision in the immediate aftermath, I think it's one of those things where, in a weird way, you can turn it into a positive. Not that it's okay to spend £150 million on Nicolas Pepe before you start. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is to have something so bad and so catastrophic, essentially, financially anyway, in your recent past, I think serves to keeping the people making those decisions now on their toes. And they'll be able to go back to a recent example of how not to do things, which should keep them on the straight and narrow. So I'm trying to turn it into something that we can use and utilize as a positive. Um, and that's why I'm looking at it that way. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I've got one more number that I'm going to shock you guys with, but, um, while I am, uh, just, um, getting ready to deliver that, which is going to be my big grand finale of my bit of the show, I want a few questions. Um, drop me some questions in the live chat. I'll pick up two or three, uh, before I say goodbye. Let me just check. Have I got the heating on in here? No, it's off. Thank God. I am boiling up in here. I put it on earlier because I thought it was going to be really cold in here, and it's bloody not. Um, okay, one more number to come. Get your questions in while we uh, while we run through that. Okay, so this blew my mind. Really did blow my mind, honestly. Arsenal's defence has allowed less than a two-goal XG against in the Premier League in 2024. Does that make sense? Because I know that when you read these XG stats, they can come across a bit jumbled up. Basically, if you look at the XG against Arsenal in 2024, in all the games that we've played since the turn of the year, the XG against us is two, two goals. So judging by the XG, we should only have conceded two goals since the turn of the year, which is pretty remarkable. To put into context how remarkable that is, Manchester City have the second lowest XG against in 2024. And that is at 6.8. So that means that our XG against is three times lower since the turn of the year than Manchester City. So we're conceding fewer chances and there are less situations against us whereby it's believed that the opposition should be punishing us which is a testament and a tip of the hat to the quality of our defending. Liverpool's XG against since the turn of the year is 10. So if you go by the XG, City should have conceded 6.8 goals since the turn of the year. Arsenal should have conceded just two and Liverpool should have conceded 10. That blew my mind. I've talked a lot this season about the greater control. I've talked a lot this season about our ability to keep opponents at arm's length. I think we've done all of that really, really well. But to see that come through statistically and, and almost prove that the eye test that I was conducting from my own kind of perspective was pretty accurate is, is refreshing. I think eye tests and statistics, they're two things that you know people can test quite a bit nowadays. I think we've got into a kind of stats-based culture where... You know, if it says this statistically, well, then that player must be good. If someone completes 100% of their passes but only plays them left or right, well, that's not taken into context because all we're looking at is the number of complete passes or the pass completion rate or field tilt and all those other things that we keep hearing about of late. I love it when I think I can see something and then the statistics back that up because that then validates my opinion in my own mind. 
And I'm not saying I'm the only one that had this opinion. I know loads of us have been talking about how Arsenal have looked like a more solid outfit this season. We've talked about David Raya's role in that, which again was something that maybe we couldn't all see when he first arrived at the football club. And uh, yeah, just to, to read the Arsenal's XG against is significantly lower than not just Manchester City's, but then Liverpool's too, I think is 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 great. And um, it, it bodes really, really well, doesn't it? And you hope that over the course of the season, that is going to be um, massive in terms of making a difference. Okay, uh, what else have we got in the chat? That's pretty much everything that I wanted to share with you guys. Let me just check my little list. I actually made a list of stuff to talk about today because um, I figured we'd been out for a couple of days and, you know, things were building up and there were lots of different stories and elements I wanted to touch on. I didn't want to miss any of them. Um, okay. Uh, There's a good question from John Daly, which we'll come to um, in a minute. Uh, I'm just looking for one more to highlight. I'm trying to pick stuff that isn't too similar so that um, so that we can uh, make sure that we have a more varied discussion here on the Chronicles of Aguna. Okay, I've got two. Uh, these are the two I'm going to do. John says, uh, would you trust every signing Arteta makes? If he signed Anthony or Mudrick, Maguire, or whoever, has he got enough in the bank for you to trust him? I admit, I do trust everything Arteta does now. I will never trust everything that someone does if my opinion is the opposite, because I think that if you get to that point where you're never challenging anyone, then it's not a healthy place to be. I'm not at the point where I'll trust every single decision that Mikel Arteta makes, but I think it's fair to say that when it comes to the big ones, and I'm talking about the high-value transfers that have happened during Arteta and Edu's kind of tenure together, they've all been a success. There have been a few misses along the way. Your your Runesons, your Pablo Maris, maybe your Cedric Suarez's, your um, you know. You know, maybe some people would put Lakonga in there because of what we paid for him. But I honestly think we got a great chance of uh, regenerating that money on him in the summer. So that would go from being a, a bit of a miss to a hit if we can do that um, over the course of the next few months. But yeah, I just I, I look at all the big signings that he's made and I think they've all worked in their own way. And so I'm not going to trust him implicitly to the point where I never question or give an opinion on anything that he does, regardless of whether it's something I disagree with. But I am willing to give those decisions the time that they need to sometimes come good. So Kai Havertz is a great example of that, right? I looked at the big deals that Arteta had done prior to Kai Havertz's arrival, and I thought that most of them were, were pretty successful. And so when everybody was saying, I can't see what Kai Havertz brings, why have we signed him, etc., I was very much banging the drum of, let's see. Let's see how it goes. And trying harder, actually, to focus on the things that I think it might be that Mikel Arteta values in order to try and understand and make sense of that decision. And over time, it's become more and more obvious why Kai Havertz was signed, why he was brought to the team. And so that's a classic example of you sometimes needing to give somebody the opportunity to settle in and for the manager to be proven right. But it doesn't mean that if he makes a sign, if he signed Mudrick now for big money, I'd question that. I'd say, why? I mean, people would say that it's not worked at Chelsea, and he wouldn't be the first, and he won't be the last that's gone to Chelsea, and it's not worked. But I don't see enough in Mudrick for me to say that he's worth a, a significant amount of money. And I was very, very, if you guys remember, I was very, very vocal about the fact that I thought the price that Shakhtar were asking was crazy, and I was glad that Arsenal seemingly didn't want to pay it and walked away from that negotiation. If he was to sign Anthony, as you mentioned, I would say, why? What have we seen from him? And Harry Maguire, that's not a signing I would back. No way. So I do trust Mikel Arteta, but that doesn't mean I won't have an opinion on some of the decisions that he takes. However, the important thing is, I believe, is to be open-minded and to realize that down the line, you might be proven wrong. And I'm happy for that to be the case if it's to the betterment of Arsenal and if it's a positive for Arsenal. Mindful says, uh, would you rather Sesko, 
Jimenez or Giocares. Mm. I have to say, these are not players that I've seen massive amounts of. Um, but just on what I know, I feel like Giocares would be a good addition. Um, he scored good goals and, and a number of goals, not just in Portugal with Sporting now, but also with Coventry City in the championship. And I always talk about the championship and whether that jump up is too big at times for you to risk big amounts of money on. But then he goes to another European league and he scores goal after goal after goal and looks really, really competent there. I'm more convinced by Gyokoresh than maybe the others, but I also recognise that that's because I've seen more of him. So if you ask me to pick from those three, currently it would be Gyokoresh, but that is not because... I'm saying he's better than Sesco or Jimenez. It's because I've seen more of him and I'd be making that decision from a more educated position. So yeah, that's my uh, that's my take on that. Look, guys, I am going to leave it there. We've been going for close to an hour. A big thank you to everybody that has tuned in. It is very, very much appreciated. Uh, love to every single one of you. Thank you for your support as always. Don't forget to leave a like on the video. Guys, there's nearly 500 of you live on YouTube right now. There's no reason why we shouldn't have at least 250 likes on the board. So please smash the like button on your way out. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. Turn on the notification bell. And if you're listening on audio, please do leave us a review. We'll be back with another episode of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast tomorrow at some point. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about yet. We'll see what unfolds over the course of the next few hours. I'm going to be at the London Football Awards tomorrow night. So hopefully I'll have uh, some stuff that I can share with you guys on Friday's episode of the podcast, where we'll begin our build up to that game against Sheffield United, of course, on Monday. But given it's um, it's one uh, where we're still going to have a bit more time, we might do the full Sheffield United preview actually on Saturday after we've had Mikel Arteta's press conference, hoping that he's going to give us something uh, to discuss and something conversation worthy. I'll leave you to it until the next one. Take care of yourselves. Have a great day. All the best. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.